Yes. About a Girl is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis. Let me tell you about Johnny Cash, the man in black, an American outlaw, a rebel who kicked out the floor lights at the Grand Ole Opry and flicked maybe the most famous middle finger of all time, an anti-authoritarian with a low, smooth croon and a cowboy sneer. But this story isn't about Johnny Cash. It's not even about June Carter Cash, his creative collaborator and wife of over three decades. This story is about Vivian Cash, his first wife and first love, the mother of his four daughters, a woman who stood by him during his struggles with addiction, through countless arrests, and who endured threats from white supremacists, only to be written out of the Cash family legacy. A woman who never stopped loving him throughout it all. This story is about a girl. Before he left for work one morning, Johnny Cash said to his wife, Honey, you know if this hits, I'm going to be traveling. How do you feel about that? Johnny and his band had just auditioned for none other than Sam Phillips, the man who discovered Elvis Presley, and Phillips had liked what he heard, wanted to make some records. That's okay, baby, Vivian told her husband. She was excited for Johnny. This was what he'd been working toward. And she knew he had the goods, just from listening to him and the band rehearse at their house in Memphis. Of course, she figured, the furthest he'd ever go was Arkansas and Mississippi. And Johnny figured the same. Poor kids from the rural South learned to keep even their dreams in check. Johnny kissed her and headed out for another long day of work. In a pattern sheet noticed, too late and eventually come to regret, Vivian stayed home and waited. Vivian Liberto had lived a sheltered, disciplined kind of life, but got a taste of showbiz at a young age. Her father was an insurance salesman who moonlighted as a magician, and Viv was his assistant, climbing into wooden boxes to shriek in terror as she was sawed in half. But that was a rare detour from an otherwise ordinary childhood. She was God-fearing and good, reserved and quiet in the navy and white uniform required by the nuns at her all-girls Catholic school. During her 17th summer, she went with friends to the local roller skating rink in her hometown of San Antonio, Texas, and there she noticed a young Air Force serviceman, unbearably handsome, tall and distinguished in his uniform. Vivian might have been shy, but she was also a looker. Deeply tanned from the summer sun, slender, blue-eyed. The granddaughter of Sicilian immigrants, she stood out as positively exotic in the heart of 1950s Texas. Now, to her great mortification, the handsome serviceman was walking towards her. Hi, I'm Johnny, he said. 
he asked if he could skate with her. It was 1951, and 19-year-old Johnny Cash hadn't shot a man in Reno nor fallen through a ring of fire. He was just a poor farm kid from Arkansas, a pious, wholesome, salt-of-the-earth type. And he was in San Antonio because he'd been stationed at the nearby Brooks Air Force Base, where he'd stay until he was deployed to West Germany. As they clumsily skated and laughed together, Johnny sang to Vivian, the first time a boy had ever done so. Later that night, he asked if she'd go out with them. You're the prettiest girl I've seen in Texas since I've been here, he told her. It was such a plain and earnest compliment, and it won her over completely. They spent every moment they could together after that, going to movies, getting sodas, taking long strolls, and eventually talking, kissing, and dreaming about their future. They had a favorite bench on San Antonio's Riverwalk, one a bit more secluded from the bustling crowds. But their love had a timeline. Just three blissful weeks and he'd be gone. Johnny was due for a tour, not the travel the country performing for adoring fans and signing autographs kind of tour, more the go to Germany for a few years to serve your country tour. With their time together coming to an end, Johnny carved a promise into the Riverwalk bench they come to call their own. Johnny loves Vivian. Everything will be fine, he told her. Then he left. Johnny and Vivian's young love might have ended right there. Sure as hell her parents hoped it would. This stranger's arrival in their high school daughter's life made them nervous. They didn't like the sudden intensity of their summer fling, and they weren't sad to see him go. They didn't know what Vivian already did. Johnny was the man she'd marry. While he was away, Johnny wrote Vivian daily, sometimes several times a day, thousands of letters over the next three years. He called her sweetheart, honey, darling, Viv. I am just crazy over you, he wrote. I'm always thinking about you. Yours till hell freezes over. He was every bit as decent and God-fearing as sweet Viv, and he poured himself into his letters, talking about the men he was with, the places they'd go, and about his sporadic drinking, something he always expressed shame about but could never quite stop. We had learned so much about each other through our letters, Vivian later wrote, probably more than most people do in a lifetime of being together. So by July 4th, 1954, when Johnny finally came marching home, they were as good as married. Vivian was with his family when they went to meet him at the airport, could hardly contain herself when she saw his tall figure in the crowd. They kissed and kissed and kissed. Vivian, you look like you're gonna eat him up, laughed Johnny's dad. And in nine months, you'll look like you did. They planned their wedding for the following month. Vivian stayed behind in San Antonio to plan the affair while Johnny went to Memphis, where he had a job opportunity. 30 days after her sweetheart set foot in American soil again, Vivian said, I do. They packed their bags and moved to Memphis. All they really wanted then was to have a family. They talked about the eight, eight, kids they hoped to have, and they got to it quickly. 
She was pregnant not two months after their wedding. Life was simple. Johnny had found a modest $65 a month apartment in a not-so-nice neighborhood on the west side of town, and they were poor. More than once in those early days, they had to borrow money from family members or from the guy who owned the appliance company where Johnny was working as a door-to-door salesman. But Vivian would always remember these days as the happiest of her life. She just didn't understand couples who said the first year of marriage was supposed to be hard. Money be damned. Johnny doted on Viv, and they fawned over one another, calling each other Honey and Baby so often their kids would later be surprised to learn their parents weren't named Honey and Baby Cash. It didn't help their financial outlook that Johnny was terrible at his job. Sometimes he began his spiel, you don't want to buy a refrigerator, do you? It wasn't totally his fault. He was pitching a major expense to folks as poor as he was. Even if he got someone to open their door and then their wallet, they'd later get rejected when the appliance store ran a credit check. Fiscally speaking, Viv and Johnny were losing ground. They needed a little luck. To blow off steam and make some friends in their new city, Johnny had started playing and writing music with co-workers of his brother Roy, guitarist Luther Perkins and bassist Marshall Grant, soon to be known as the Tennessee Two. Vivian would sit inside with their wives and play cards, talking while the boys practiced. Viv was grateful for her new friends, and wouldn't you know it, she started to think the boys were sounding pretty good. Their dreams began to coalesce. Vivian and Johnny both knew going door-to-door shilling refrigerators to poor folks was a dead end. He wanted to cut a record. As ever enthusiastic and starry-eyed over her handsome and charismatic husband, Vivian told him he just had to try. You can do anything you want to do, baby. You can do it. We saw eye to eye on everything, agreed on everything, she later recalled. Or I should say, I agreed on everything. Bolstered by her encouragement, the band went to Sun Records and finally got Sam Phillips to listen to them. They could not have imagined in less than a year, Johnny would be singing on the radio with Elvis that he and Viv would, in fact, call Elvis a close personal friend, or that Johnny would gain a following nearly as huge and rabid as the king himself. Baby, are you ever tempted by those women at your shows? Things had moved at a whiplash pace for Johnny and Viv. Weeks after their first daughter, Roseanne, was born, Johnny's single Cry, Cry, Cry hit the airwaves. People loved it and the track shot to the top of the Memphis charts. On August 15, 1955, Johnny Cash played his first public show, opening for Elvis at the Outdoor Amphitheater in Memphis. A hell of a debut, with Viv standing stage left, cheering him on. Johnny was through selling appliances, and Viv was ecstatic to see him doing what he was so obviously born to do. Now it felt like the world was watching including a lot of women, hence dear Vivian's self-conscious question over breakfast. You don't ever need to worry, baby. You're on my mind every minute, day and night. I'll walk the line for you. Vivian's husband would turn those words into the biggest hit he ever had, the ones inscribed on his gravestone even today. You could say she helped him write it, 
literally scribbling down his lyrics from the passenger seat as Johnny drove. In those early days, she would travel with him to his appearances. She sewed his stage clothes, shiny and white back then, not yet his trademark all-black undertaker's outfit, and she helped out where needed. Viv was still timid, shy, not the affable every man her husband was, especially with a little liquid courage in him. She sat in the corner at his shows, too anxious to make conversation, and she was aware that her shyness read to Johnny's growing group of friends and tourmates as kind of rude, aloof, which only fed the anxiety in a painful cycle. She was helpless against it. Her early days as a magician's assistant didn't quite prepare her for the increasingly bright spotlight reflecting off her charming and now famous husband. But Johnny was proud of his pretty wife, and like any oblivious young egocentric, liked to show her off, calling her up on stage to let the crowd take a look at her. She didn't love the paralyzing attention, let alone the wolf whistles, but she was so happy for her husband, pleased that everyone saw in him what she did, that she was willing to play her part. It was spring of 1956 when I Walk the Line came out, and it came out huge. Number one on the country charts. It even cracked the top, top 20. Johnny was 24. Viv was just 22. It was around that time that they had their second little girl, Kathy. By the end of the next year, there was a third on the way. Vivian still traveled with Johnny whenever possible, but whenever possible was less and less frequent with their growing family and the increasing demands of Johnny's lifestyle. She missed him fiercely when he was away, but was relieved to be out of the public eye and turned her attention to what constituted the real job of an American wife in the 50s, creating a happy home for him to return to after each increasingly long stint on the road. Johnny got a new manager, Stu Carnell. Carnell thought the next big step for his client was the movies. On his recommendation, Johnny moved the family to California. He bought a house in Encino from Johnny Carson. True to his name, Carnell liked the more sensual things in life. He was a California guy, into the ponies and poker and women, and drugs. It worried the still devoutly Christian Vivian, moving into what seemed like chaos, so far from Memphis's relative sleepiness, from the place she'd been so happy. But she loved Johnny and agreed to the move. Johnny was drinking more often and more heavily. His new friends made her uneasy. One night they were driving with future country music legend George Jones, whose drinking genuinely frightened Viv. Jones, wasted off his ass and for seemingly no reason, screamed, I'm going to beat the shit out of you, Johnny. Stop this damn car. Even friends from Memphis like Elvis and Jerry Lee were slouching toward the edge with the help of pills and booze. Vivian was still worried about other women, one woman in particular, a famous woman. A glamorous woman, June Carter was vying for a spot on Johnny's upcoming tour. Vivian Cash first met June Carter in 1958. They were at a party in Nashville 
and seconds after they said their hellos, June was showing off her new rock. With every husband, my diamond gets bigger as she laughed. She had just gotten married to her second, Edwin Lee Nix. Vivian was unnerved by the kind of woman who measured a marriage by the size of a diamond, a man by the magnitude of his success. Viv was sweet and quiet, but far from stupid. She knew what men did on tour, the secrets they kept from their wives at home, the assurances their bandmates would make, the lies they'd tell. Hell, she'd even been a conspirator. She knew for years that Luther Perkins was cheating on his wife, Bertie, but she kept the secret close. Still, she tried not to think about the whispered rumors about Johnny's behavior with women on the road. Viv and Johnny were still lovebirds in 1958, and she had confidence in their union. While he was gone, she took care of the kids and managed a menagerie of animals that Johnny kept collecting back home in Encino. They even took a belated honeymoon through Europe, now that they could afford it. But things were about to change for the Cash family again. Johnny's success grew beyond their expectations. The tours got longer. The honeymoon, in every sense of the word, was over. In 1965, high on the pills he was now fully addicted to, Johnny decided to drive into the mountains to go fishing. Two days later, Vivian got a phone call from the police who said he'd been arrested for setting a massive blaze. Johnny maintained his innocence. It wasn't intentional. And it certainly wasn't the fact that he was completely doped on barbiturates at the time. It was just that his camper caught on fire while he was sleeping. I didn't do it. My truck did, and it's dead, so you can't question it, he told authorities. They didn't think it was so funny. Johnny's little fire destroyed 500 acres of land. And so Johnny Cash made history as the first private citizen ever to be sued by the federal government for starting a forest fire. He was fined $82,000, the equivalent of about 700000 today. Vivian didn't think it was funny either. She tried to stop Johnny that day, as she had on so many others, but he'd been determined. By then, Johnny didn't really listen to her anymore. Through the same combination of pills and willful neglect, he seemed hell-bent on burning their marriage to the ground. The move out west had been a mistake. Just as Vivian feared, her husband was too close to the temptations of stardom. His drinking escalated further. How else to wash down the mountain of uppers, downers, and in-betweeners he seemed to need just to function? Vivian would find pills stashed around the house, stuffed into sock toes, tucked away in drawers. She despised those pills. They changed her husband into a stranger, and she flushed them when she found them, a rainbow of damage swirling down the drain. Almost overnight, they took control of Johnny, she lamented, and nothing was the same after that. He'd moved them to a new house they'd built on a remote mountain, isolated from everything. But then he'd be gone for endless stretches and couldn't be counted on to return when he was supposed to. 
Vivian paced the floor with a cigarette and coffee, waiting hours and then days for the glare of headlights coming up their long driveway. Sometimes they would, even if it wasn't until the early morning. More often now, they didn't at all. Daddy didn't come home last night, her daughter Kathy asked. His tour had ended on the 14th. It was now the 20th. This was a pattern. When is daddy coming home, Roseanne followed. Vivian didn't have an answer for them. She was running out of excuses for her husband. Daddy's not feeling well. He stopped working. She decided to teach him a lesson, gathering the girls and going to a motel. She knew that when he returned to find them gone, he'd wonder what happened to them. He'd panic and maybe then finally understand how she felt, waiting there night after night, hour after hour. When they returned to the house, it was still empty. Johnny never even knew they had left. Vivian had their fourth daughter, Tara, in 1961. By then, Johnny was on the road 250 days a year. On the rare nights when he was home, he was a nightmare to be around. He was never not high on pills. He'd start fires at the house, roll his tractor, crash his car. He laid in bed at night, a lit cigarette dangling from the edge of his mouth. Vivian waited for him to pass out each time, carefully removing the potential tragedy from between his lips before trying to get sleep herself. During a family trip to Palm Springs, he excused himself for a few minutes and disappeared. The next Vivian heard of him was a call from a local jail saying he'd been arrested. Johnny's long-term chemical experimentation on himself brought on hallucinations. His mood swings were wild. And on top of the turmoil at home, it was becoming increasingly obvious to Vivian that there was another unwelcome presence in their marriage, June Carter. Viv would find receipts for tape recorders and other gifts he bought for June and her family. Vivian felt degraded, helpless. Johnny, I can't take care of the children until we get something settled. I know there's something going on between you and June. She confronted him with everything. The receipts, the suspicious behavior and unexplained absences, and then finally the confirmation she'd gotten from his bandmates and family. She begged him to fix their marriage. She's off the tour, he promised. But that didn't last. Johnny had long since stopped asking Vivian to travel with him, first making excuses for why she couldn't come and eventually banning her outright. If he was home, they were fighting. More than once, their daughters saw him pushing their mom around. Though never, Vivian swore, hard enough to leave a bruise. A few months after he set the forest ablaze, Johnny was arrested again, this time at the border. He had tried to smuggle hundreds of pills back from Mexico and was tossed in jail. Vivian was by then familiar with the secondhand shame that came from seeing her husband's face splashed across the front page of national papers. News of the blaze had been everywhere. Was the fire an accident? Did Johnny Cash's careless actions cause the forest fire? It was such a big story that the checker at her local grocery store looked at her dead in the eyes and asked, well, how did Johnny Cash start that fire up in the mountain? 
two months after customs agents found Equinel and Dexedrine tablets in Johnny's guitar case, he pled guilty to the possession charge. He got off pretty easy, as he tended to for each of his seven arrests. This time, he got a suspended sentence and a $1,000 fine. Vivian flew down to El Paso. Stand by your man and all. She didn't know it then, but this time things were going to be much, much worse for them. As Vivian and Johnny left the courthouse arm in arm, an AP photographer snapped a photo of them together. It would soon appear in newspapers across the globe. Now, here's the thing about Vivian Cash, nay, Vivian Liberto. The uncommon beauty that had first attracted Johnny with her deep olive skin had rarely been seen by his legions of fans. Since she shied away from the spotlight after the early days and was rarely photographed, People knew Johnny in June. They didn't know Johnny and Viv. White supremacist groups, seeing the country hero pictured alongside his wife for the first time, decided she was Black. And this time, there was no room for gray area in the Black-white racial divide. As America moved into the civil rights era, it was extremely important to some which side of that line you were on. And even more important was that the line never be crossed. A racist organization in Alabama that called itself the National States Rights Party, led by noted terrorist J.B. Stoner, republished the photo in its newspaper, The Thunderbolt, alongside an article writing, Money from the sale of these records goes to scum like Johnny Cash to keep them supplied with dope and Negro women. Then the death threats rolled in. White supremacy is God's law, but you don't care, do you, Cash? You sold your guts for money long ago, read one letter. Interracial marriages were still banned throughout much of the South back then. Cash was constantly being harassed by former fans and plain old enthusiastic racists in Jim Crow states, states that were home to the majority of the country music fan base. There was a groundswell to boycott his music. Another truly vile group called the Alabama White Citizens Council sent out tape-recorded robocalls. Singer Johnny Cash has a negress for a wife and four mongrelized children. The race mixers in the record industry continue to sell his records to your teenage children. Newspapers accepted the premise of this hateful campaign, clarifying to their readers that Vivian was actually of Italian-American descent. Johnny went so far as to issue a statement to the KKK stating that Vivian was white. He threatened to sue. Family friends wrote letters to vouch for Viv's whiteness and high moral character. For many, those two things were synonymous. For her part, as a girl who had always felt different from her friends, whose appearance had set her apart at an age when she wanted only to fit in, Viv was terribly wounded. She was otherized, made to feel like a liability, publicly shamed, An inferiority complex that had always dogged her was again inflamed. Mostly, though, she was terrified. Convinced that the KKK was coming for them, she stopped sleeping, staying up late into the night with a gun nearby. Her husband, as usual, was nowhere to be found. The campaign against Johnny and Viv ultimately failed. 
There were more cancellations of his concerts over the drug arrest than these charges the separatist group made, his manager later recalled. The Thunderbolt, it turns out, didn't have all that many readers. None of this made a difference for the cash marriage. Things were at a low point between Vivian and Johnny. He just stopped talking to her and was not about to be confronted or questioned about his drug use or anything else for that matter. Addiction 101. She knew he needed help, treatment for his dependency. He wouldn't hear it. Johnny wrote pathetic letters to his daughters, telling them in one, I'm sorry I haven't been home. I've been out fighting the KKK. But he was fooling no one. The girls knew the score. Roseanne ripped up the letter, another in her father's never-ending list of bullshit excuses for not being around. Vivian was still the bookkeeper for all of Johnny's tours. While he was out on the road, he'd collect payment and expense receipts, putting everything in one of those shiny, insulated, cold bags for safekeeping until he returned. And Vivian would do the math, looking over all of the receipts laid out right on their big kitchen table. But Johnny, unbeknownst to Viv, was cooking the books. And it wasn't the IRS he was keeping secrets from. She uncovered tens of thousands of dollars in gifts for June and her family. Johnny had bought June's mother a house. A fucking house. That was it. She filed for divorce, half expecting it to shock him to his senses. Even after all that had happened, she didn't realize how far gone he was. Johnny let the divorce go through. Until the day she died, Vivian remembered signing their divorce papers as the worst day of her life. She got the house and alimony, child support, and 50% of royalties for everything Johnny had written and recorded up until that point. Not a bad deal, but she also got an unshakable feeling of humiliation, shame, anger, and distrust. That was a shit deal. But anyway, by January 1968, it was final. They were done. The family doctor told Vivian, If you don't get yourself together, somebody else is going to be raising your kids. That's what it took to get her to walk back from the brink. She'd been sinking slowly, depressed and suicidal. But jarred by the doctor's prediction, she now focused on the girls. She took them out of town to avoid the public fallout from the divorce. Johnny was living in Nashville with Waylon Jennings who added his own thousand-dollar-a-day cocaine habit to Johnny's spiraling pill addiction. Vivian refused to let the kids visit him in that scene. It wasn't until he had a new house of his own that she agreed to send them. And then, finally, Johnny found the bottom and accepted that he needed to get clean. With June's support, he kicked the drugs. His career, meanwhile, was bigger than ever. He was on TV all the time, always with June smiling that radiant smile by his side. Raising all these kids makes me plum tired, she say in her folksy, endearing way, with the implication being that she was raising Vivian's four children, Roseanne, Kathy, Cindy, and Tara, along with her own. It made Vivian furious. She was raising her own daughters. The girls lived with her, not Johnny and Joan. What the hell does she know about it? In a letter she never sent, She wrote to him, I ask nothing of you. Always stay quietly lost and never cause any problems. 
I only wish you would just let the world know I am still alive. I raised the girls alone for the most part. I resent so much June claiming my four girls. Neither of you know the hell and heartache that I've been through. Her relegation to a mere obstacle that Johnny had to overcome to begin his mythic love affair with June pained her, and she was again that little girl, full of self-doubt. But she did remarry a guy named Dick Diston, an old friend of hers and Johnny's whose own marriage had fallen apart. They moved to Ventura on a mountain overlooking the Pacific, and she created a happy home for her and the girls, an active and social life. Her daughter Roseanne found fame and critical acclaim as a songwriter herself, and Cindy performed with her father in June and later formed a group with the daughters of George Jones and Tammy Wynette, Conway Twitty, and Loretta Lynn. It was all so rewarding to Vivian, though the sadness was still there. It was when she became a grandmother that she shook her pain for good and truly found joy again. She loved the grandkids profoundly and even set up a toll-free phone number for them to reach her. In the final months of Johnny's life, she went to see him. June had recently died, and he was in poor health. Viv wanted to get his blessing to write her own book, to finally get her side of the story out after so many years in the shadows. They chatted for a couple of hours, and he told her that no one deserved to tell their story more. She was happy to have his approval, and even more so to spend some time with the great love of her life. But this isn't about him. This is about Vivian Liberto, who loved and supported him through the hell of addiction public shame and heartache, who gave him a home and a family. This is about a girl. About a Girl comes to you from Double Elvis and is executive produced by Jake Brennan and Brady Sadler. It was created by Eleanor Wells. This episode was written by Emily Castle. Scott Janovitz is the show's producer and composer. Matt Bowden provides logistical support. Additional music and score elements by Ryan Spraker and additional writing by Scott Janovitz. I'm Nikki Lynette. Thanks for listening. You can follow me at at Nikki Lynette on Twitter and Instagram, at Double Elvis on Instagram, and at Double Elvis FM on Twitter. If you like the show, please be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more great podcasts from Double Elvis, visit DoubleElvis.com.